The other question is whether sellers are satisfied by the transaction. Because in professional services, whether it's law or accounting, or in this case, financial advice, the ultimate duty is to the consumer, to the client, to the investor. And you always have to ask yourself the question, is the client better off post-transaction than they were pre-transaction? Because ultimately, that is a legacy that you're going to leave behind. Welcome to the Fueling Deals Podcast, the podcast that teaches how to accelerate your business growth through all types of deals. It's time to fuel up, so buckle in with your host, Corey Kupfer. There are only two ways to grow your business, organically through sales and marketing and providing great products and services, and inorganically through deals. Too many companies focus only on the first way, organic growth. Welcome to the podcast, which will help accelerate your business growth inorganically. My guests are a huge variety of deal makers and experts on all types of deals who have personal experience that can help you grow, get clear, learn best practices, and avoid mistakes. We discuss everything from large, complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My guest today is Mark Tabergian. Mark joined BNY Mellon Pershing as head of its RIA and family office custody unit in 2007 and as the chief executive officer of Advisor Solutions and a member of Pershing's executive committee. Prior to joining Pershing, he was the, uh, a principal at Moss Adams LLP, where he was partner in charge of the business consulting group and chairman of the financial services industry group. Since 1973, he has worked on strategy, management, development, and transition planning with hundreds of independent RIA firms, broker-dealers, investment managers, managers, insurance companies, and other financial service organizations worldwide. Um, listen, listen so I'm not going to read his whole bio. Check it out. He's written four books. He has all kinds of awards. All of that will be in the show notes. Um, I've known Mark um, for uh uh, wow, a number of you over a decade, uh, you know, in this uh, in the RA industry. But Mark also has a background in uh, in other industries and is really uh, just a leading voice and uh, and, and thought leader uh, as to uh, not only uh, the financial services industry but you know growth of firms in general. And it's a real honor and privilege to have you on the show, Mark. Thank you, Corey. Good to be here. Well, so I, I, I want to start out before we get into uh, all your, your your wisdom and hearing a little bit more about BNY Pershing uh, and what you do. I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up. Um, what did you want to be? Because my guess is running a custody you know uh, firm in the RA space was probably not it when you were eight or ten years old. But you tell me. Well, that's a fair guess. Uh, my only knowledge of a custodian when I was eight or ten years old was who had the most keys. <laughs> I love so it. much has changed. Uh, actually, uh, I don't know at what point I had this epiphany, but uh, I was quite sure I wanted to be Walter Cronkite. Uh, I was drawn to journalism. And in fact, uh, uh, the first uh, couple of jobs I had were as a newspaper and radio reporter. So uh, I did have an experience there uh, that was profound. In fact, my very first job was uh, reading and writing obituaries for the radio. Wow. Okay, that's interesting. How how did that one come about? Well, I think I've come full circle. <laughs> um, so, did you have so before you, you actually sort of anticipated my you know my um, my second question, which is really sort of you know what was your first uh, either business or job? Um, but uh, when you were a little kid, did you have uh, you know did you want to be? Uh, it was a news reporter. That was that was it at that time. Uh, it was Walter Cronkite. 
Yeah, it, it truly was. Uh, I grew up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which uh, for those who don't know the state, it's not even on the hand, it's above the hand. It's uh, well north of Toronto. So uh, many people leave it off the maps. And up there you hunt fish or drink. And uh, and it used to be a big uh, timber and mining uh, part of the country. Uh, my dad was a business, uh, building supply salesperson. Uh, my stepmother worked for uh, an office manager within an oil uh, distribution company. So uh, the real models for the things I wanted to do were either working at the paper mill uh, or uh, some other industrial role or in some liberal arts role like a journalist. And, uh, and I figured that journalism was the key for getting me out of town. And so that's why I chose that route. Got it. So let's let's sort of jump ahead here and then we can sort of, you know, go back to some of your experience in between then and now. But um, as I said, you know, we have uh, a lot of people in the industry who uh, know you and know uh, uh, BNY Mellon Pershing and what a custodian does. But we also have a bunch of listeners outside of the RA industry who may be a lot less familiar. I mean, I'm, I know they've uh, I'm sure they've heard of BNY Pershing, but they may not even understand exactly what a custodian does. So can you give us that that basic uh you know, information so the uh, audience has a context? Sure, happy to do it. So as a part of BNY Mellon, which is uh, formerly known as Bank of New York uh, and Mellon Investment, so it's a merger of two companies. So Bank of New York was founded by Alexander Hamilton. It's the oldest financial institution in the country. At one time, it was a retail bank, but eventually decided to focus uh, primarily on being an institutional bank. And the substance of that is as a custodian, which is uh, our primary business, uh, our job is to hold the financial assets of clients safe. And so in many cases, that's uh, opaque to investors because they might be working with a broker dealer who provides all those services as part of a captive experience. Uh, But those who outsource custody to an independent firm uh, will recognize that that a company like BNY Mellon Pershing has a primary role of ensuring that uh, the assets are kept safe and that uh, the advisors who are uh, managing the money using our platform uh, are doing things in a copacetic way, uh, ensuring that uh, there is no money laundering, uh, no uh, mismanagement of the assets and all those other elements. Great. Uh, and uh, so in addition to that, with like the independent RA firms on your platform, et cetera, um, you also uh, help them grow in certain ways, including through, you know, through deals. So you want to talk a little bit about how um, uh, a firm like uh, Mellon Pershing supports advisors uh, in their growth? Sure. You know, what's interesting about the uh, the custody business uh, in financial services is that custody itself is probably among the most commoditized elements of the business. And so in order to deliver a richer experience to both the advisors who recommend their clients to us as their custodian or to the clients themselves, we have to think about the ways in which we enrich the value. It's a, it's a common problem in any business that is trying to say, uh, how do we distinguish or be different in the market? So from our standpoint, what's key is that we think about the business of financial advice as our core proposition. And we're looking at things like strategy and structure, people and process, managing to profitability. In in that uh, context, we often think about should firms merge or acquire? And if so, what are the integration challenges that come with it? And is there special insight that we can provide on 
market trends or market issues or financial dynamics within the business that will help both buyers and sellers make informed decisions about the transaction. We obviously don't act as an investment banker, uh, nor do we act as counsel in those cases, but we do act as a resource to deliver higher value to clients uh, who recognize us as a trusted partner. So you said something interesting there, which applies in this industry, but really applies to any type of business. And I know you have a background, uh, you know, outside of financial services as well. You know, you said uh, sort of helping them decide and consult on whether they should or should not, right, do deals. And, yes, right. and um, you know, I, I, uh, I'll assume an answer that the truth is some of them should and some of them should not. And, I, you know, and, and the, so what I'd love to hear is, uh, you know, what your view on, uh, on what some of the factors are on, you know, who should grow or should not grow and, you know, who's successful at it and, you know, and is it. And, and it sort of plays into this thing that I'm always fascinated by, uh, which is sort of the, um, you know, who becomes deal makers and what, and what that means versus the people who, you know, are just, you know, don't have that ability. Yeah, it's a, it's a great combination of questions. Uh, something I wrestle with uh, uh, quite a bit because when I look at, at any business, whether it's financial services or some other type of business, the question is whether the merger acquisition fits into the strategic goals of the business. I think today in financial services, we're seeing a lot of sellers who are seeking liquidity uh, and are not seeking a strategic partner, but merely are seeking money because they haven't planned for their own continuity or uh, or cash out internally. Uh, I think for many of the buyers, it's more opportunist, uh, excuse me, opportunistic shopping, uh, where uh, there are sellers who are available, uh, and there are probably 40 to 50 prospective buyers uh, who are making offers. So it's much like an auction, and uh, and so they the terms tend to favor the seller in most cases, but they're they're making these acquisitions with the hope of getting to scale. The challenge that many of these firms have that are on the acquiring side is they don't really have a strategic blueprint for what they're creating besides getting bigger. That if you're sitting in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, uh, does it truly make sense to acquire a firm in Orlando, Florida or Omaha, Nebraska? And so you have to begin asking yourself the question is, what's the commonality? What's the element that ties you together? And can you, in fact, get scale when you're so disparate? in your geographic markets. The same may be true in terms of your customer base, that taking an advisory firm again, if you're dealing with the high net worth clients, does it necessarily make sense that you'd buy a firm that specializes in retirement plans or that is a digital platform or that is some other uh, organization, perhaps an in insurance? And it may make sense, but the question is, will you knit these together in a way that delivers a coherent strategy? So one thing that I think is true is that the volume of activity, the volume of mergers and acquisitions in financial services is at a record level. Uh, the concern that I have now is whether the buyers will begin to digest what's happening uh, and they will begin to integrate, truly create synergies and build a brand, and whether the employees that came over with those transactions will stay or choose to go to another firm. The other question is whether sellers are satisfied by the transaction, because in professional services, whether it's law or accounting, or in this case, financial advice, the ultimate duty is to the consumer, to the client, to the investor. And you always have to ask yourself the question, is the client better off post-transaction than they were pre-transaction? Because ultimately, that is a legacy that you're going to leave behind. 
Yeah, I, I love everything you said, and it raises, you know, there's a lot in that that we could unpack, uh, probably for much longer than we have <laughs> for this entire podcast, just in this piece. But, you know, a few things that I want to sort of point out and then see if you have anything you want to say on them is, you know, the, the first question, you know, I, I did a, a attentive video series, if anybody wants to look at it, it's on my website, but on um, why, uh, you know, on, on 10 steps for our firms who want to do deals, whether it's uh, M&A, uh, tuck-in or onboarding deals. And, and the first video is about why. You know, it really goes to what you talked about. I mean, like, you know, you need to have a why and a coherent, you know, that goes to a coherent strategy on why you're doing it. And just growth for growth's sake is, uh, you know, is, 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 is not it. And then you raised uh, a whole conversation about integration, which there's so many parts to, right? From cultural to technical to, you know, client service and investment, you know, uh, uh, platforms and approach. And then uh, you didn't specifically talk, but you sort of alluded, you know, in terms of the number of buyers versus sellers and, and, you know, the um, incentives to growth, you know, always raises the concern for me about what I you know, always call deal discipline. And I've seen it in so many industries where money starts to come into the industry and, uh, you know, they mature and then and it's and it's a positive economy and things are going well. And and then, you know, deal discipline is lost and then, uh, you know, we get a downturn and then there's always a shakeout. So, you know, I, I know I, I sort of summarized a lot there, but any any thoughts on any of those particular areas? Yeah, several things. Uh, one, uh, I love the the idea of beginning with why. It's always a good question for anything you're doing. Uh, sometimes it's just an emotional decision, so you don't look for the uh, for the reason why. Uh, but if you're a rational business person, you always have to ask that question: Is uh, what problem am I solving, or what opportunity am I gaining? And if it's merely size, uh, that is rarely a good argument for uh, committing the resources of the time and the energy into an acquisition. Uh, size by itself rarely uh, accomplishes much. And in fact, you and I both have been around uh, mergers and acquisitions in all industries long enough to know that uh, many of the industries that have consolidated in the past uh, have, uh, have really failed. Whether you look at funeral homes or medical practices or uh, waste management might be the only one where there is real success in consolidation. And there are so many moving parts that get into it, but you have to say, why would you do this besides the pure economics? Uh, the, the other element to that is this whole notion of what you accomplish uh, once you go through the process and how will people feel? Will the clients be served better as a result of getting to scale or adding new dimensions to your business that make a difference? And I think, I think those are big questions that, uh, that always occur. So, yeah, I think that there are deals that are uh, not well contemplated uh, and not well executed. And uh, the, the test for me is uh, what does the business look like three years after a transaction occurs? And unfortunately, you can't anticipate that, but you can try to manage to it. And if people who are part of the combined organization feel that it's, a, it's an additive culture, not just a culture fit, but an additive culture, and they feel that the business has enriched its brand and has enriched its offering, and it has become a more compelling place for both clients and employees to, to do business, then you've accomplished exactly what you want to accomplish. Uh, ultimately, the measure is in financial terms, but I think that we recognize that this is a momentum business. People make decisions for emotional reasons, and some level of emotional fulfillment has to come from that as well. 
And what do you think the impact has been? I mean, obviously, we've seen a, a, such a significant change in this industry over the last five, seven years, even uh, in terms of private equity, uh, you know, money coming in, uh, you know, that couple of firms go public. Um, and, uh, you know, I've seen this in other industries as well. It's pretty typical uh, part of a cycle of a maturing industry, right, where, you know, capital stuff's coming to the industry and there's consolidation, you know, but uh, what have you seen as the impact of that and how do you, you know, uh, good and bad uh, in the RA space? I think it is both good and bad. Uh, you know, the beauty of private equity or any capital coming into this market is that it's validating the independent advisory model. Uh, this is an industry that fundamentally is made up of small businesses. Uh, most of them are not at scale. And so having uh, professional investors come in and say, we want to put be money behind these models in order to create uh, more substantial businesses, I think is a, is a great testimony uh, to, the, to the elegance of the fiduciary advisory model. Uh, I think the downside is that uh, uh, for many, it's just a transaction. Uh, advisory firms tend to be very profitable. Uh, they tend to grow at a good pace. Uh, their ability to generate revenue just by accumulating assets is significant. And, uh, and it's, not a, it's not a balance sheet heavy business. And so uh, capital from that standpoint isn't required. It's more of a P&L business. And I think that it becomes very appealing for professional investors that they can buy low and sell high. And uh, obviously, that doesn't create this enduring model that one would hope to create. So, uh, so I think that uh, when, when buyers are seeking private equity, it's important that they pick partners that have the same vision as to what they're trying to create and, uh, and perhaps even reconcile that it's a temporary relationship, not a permanent one. Uh, equity tends to be permanent. Uh, that, by definition, is what it is, but uh, the relationship doesn't have to be. The question is, how will you ultimately um, uh, change that dynamic? The, the other question is whether, uh, if capital is required, if firms shouldn't be looking for a less expensive source like debt, is there another way in which to approach this, or even their own papers, or a way in which to think about mergers rather than acquisitions? But generally speaking, I, I find that the uh, inclusion of capital uh, from private investors in the business has been a good thing because it has forced firms to think more about managing professionally and and creating a discipline around financial management that makes a difference. Uh, but I don't know that we have seen uh, the side effects yet of passive shareholders and whether or not uh, they can help firms that combine to create an enduring culture. Yeah. And so let's take that a step further. So we, you know, obviously we don't, we don't know when, uh, but I think, you know, pretty much everybody agrees that we run in cycles and it's uh, at some point, whether it's six months or two years or six years or who knows, um, you know, uh, we're going to have an economic downturn. And of course, in this industry, it's, uh, you know, it's sort of a double whammy, right? You know, so the firms that are looking to grow rapidly, um, you know, and the money coming in and, you know, uh, uh, there may be fewer, or by the way, more opportunities. Sometimes, like there's huge opportunities in the down market, but you know, but also in addition to the general economic uh, background, if asset values go down in terms of assets under management, that affects revenues of, of firms that get mostly paid on a percentage of AUM. So, um, you know, what do you, uh, whenever that comes, in light of the evolution and maturing of the industry and the money that's coming into industry and the consolidation and that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, what do you think are the uh, impacts of the next downturn? 
Well, I think that the professional investors get a preferred return in most cases. Uh, But even if they don't, uh, I think the notion of taking a longer view is critical. Uh, Normally, whenever we see any market cycle, it doesn't last for decades. It doesn't last even for multiple years. It might be uh, maybe two years that you might see the stress that occurs on a business. Uh, I mean, we could see something worse. Anything's possible. 2008 was a was a real shocker. Uh, there are a lot of banks that disappeared as a result of it. I think, though, the question is, uh, if you really fundamentally believe in this business model, in that uh, it has value beyond the management of assets, but it is impacting the lives of people who really relish um, uh, professional advice, then as a concept, uh, it has uh, it creates opportunity. So in a down market, to your point, I think that uh, I think probably it creates more rational pricing in the market than what we see today. As I mentioned earlier, it's very much a seller's market and and price and terms tend to inure to the benefit of the sellers in this case. Uh, so there probably are some buyers that are hoping for uh, a little interruption in this momentum so that prices come to uh, to the realm of reason. Uh, right now, sellers uh, have a perception of value and greatness that is out of proportion to reality. So uh, any anytime you can shock them back into uh, what should be more normal uh, economics uh, is probably a good thing. Yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit about what you're what we're seeing in terms of the changes in deal terms uh, because of that, uh, because I've, I've definitely seen an evolution, not only in terms of value, you know, valuation, but even in terms of deal structuring, you know, more money up front and that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, wh- what are you seeing in terms of deal um, structure and term evolution in this day and age in the, in the space? Well, I think you hit it. Uh, obviously, there's more down. Uh, the multiples are um, higher in some cases, or actually the dollar amount is higher. I don't know necessarily the multiples are higher. Uh, and uh, and the, the terms uh, tend to uh, be shorter for the benefit of the seller. Uh, and there probably is less dependency on performance of the business post-transaction. So uh, I think when you have an auction market like we do today, uh, that's causing people to sweeten the deal in, in different ways. The part of this, though, that concerns me is, uh, is there are a number of firms that are being acquired uh, that have old demographics. Uh, their principals are old. Their clients tend to be as old or older. Uh, many of them are entering into deaccumulation phase. The firms have not demonstrated a uh, any momentum around new growth, and so uh, you know I've always learned that value is a function of the future. And what concerns me about some of the deal structures is that they're not recognizing uh, the future in terms of the pricing and terms, uh, but they're basing it on historical performance. And so uh, this is where reconciliation ultimately has to has to come into play, but. I would imagine that many buyers are saying, you know, as long as we have the core asset, as long as we have the bulk of the clients, as long as we have a brand and a market, uh, we can transform this into uh, a great asset going forward. And that's a relatively safe bet. As long as the people who are there uh, continue to feel valued in the process. And so that may become the big challenge for a lot of firms going forward is how do you not only keep the people that have built the firm to this point, but how do you attract new talent into the marketplace and into the business 
to drive it forward. And, and obviously, uh, you know, you and I have uh, had these discussions in the past and we've been at conferences where this has come up. And, you know, obviously that's that that's a big challenge in the industry is that next gen challenge and, and the, the lack of uh uh, uh, you know, of uh, development, uh, of recruiting and development of, of, of junior talent. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think that point about being able to do that is, is crucial, right? It's an area that, uh, that I'm spending considerable time on. I chair the Workforce Development Committee for the CFP Board Center for Financial Planning. And we have a couple of missions. One is how do we attract more people to the business? And second, how do we increase the uh, diversity of the advisor population. So we have 40,000 fewer financial professionals today than we did in 2008, yet the amount of uh, the number of wealthy people that have uh, come into the market or the amount of liquid assets that have come into the market continues to grow. So the beauty is we have this oversupply of clients and an undersupply of people to provide advice. But the age demographics are disturbing with the average age in the high 50s. And the, and the other diversity elements that are of concern are there are only 23% women who are advisors and only 8% people of color. Yet we see the changing dynamics. We know that in most families, women are making the economic decisions. Uh, we know that uh, in roughly 20 or 25 years, we'll be a majority minority country. Uh, we know that if we look at the economic power of black Americans, uh, it's bigger than the economy of Russia. If we look at the economic power of Hispanic Americans, it's bigger than the economy of Russia. If we look at the economic power of Asian Americans, it's bigger than the economy of Russia. So if you're smart about it, you would become the employer of choice uh, as a way to grow this business because we want to have people in our business that reflect the faces of our community, but we also want to be compelling to people who are growing wealth in their own that are not seeking professional advice. So, yeah, I love that because it totally aligns with uh, not only my values, but my view, uh, which I agree with, you know, in the industry. And and even if, uh, you know, you don't have a commitment to diversity uh, for other reasons, it's just smart business. I mean, demographics, you know, are what they are. Um, so I, I'm curious as to as to what. Uh, so, you know, on a deals podcast, right? Uh, I don't only deal with mergers and acquisitions. I, I look at, you know, doing deals with your internal people, creating partnership tracks, right? And having them be able to buy in on equity or things like that are deals as well. And and then obviously that makes the possibility of an internal succession uh, deal even more possible. Um, but practically, uh, as we've alluded to, a lot of firms, uh, you know, majority of firms, I don't think are doing a good job of that. What do you think it is that's... Um, you know, that's preventing, you know, I mean, are, are we talking about lack of knowledge? Is, is it talking about ego, inability to give up control, uh, poor training? You know, wh wh what's involved in the fact uh, that this industry has not done a great job? I mean, I, I can I can sort of think of the clients that I've worked with where we've helped create, you know, a, 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 an opportunity for the second generation, you know, partnership track tied that into the succession of, of the seniors. And when you do that right, it could be phenomenal. It's just such a minority of firms that, are, that have successfully done that. Well, there's a, there's a certain irony in all of this. It's like uh, having an obese doctor. Uh, you know, you, you kind of wonder if they're practicing what they preach. And I think in financial services, we see the same thing where they're counseling people on, on decisions related to both money and emotion. And uh, I think what we find in this business is that it is comprised uh, primarily of small, closely held businesses. 
These are individuals who were pioneers. They created uh, a practice uh, of some size, but generally they are small. Uh, they don't have a depth of talent around them, particularly of management. Uh, oftentimes, they don't believe that uh, the person that's worked with them for 20 years uh, has matured beyond uh, their teenage years uh, or that they haven't developed the skills. And so there's this level of underestimation that occurs. Uh, they often say that uh, they can't afford to buy my practice, which befuddles me because uh, if the cash flow uh, supports the purchase price, then there's always a way of structuring a deal to make that happen. But I think that fundamentally what happens is people are confusing succession planning and sale planning. That uh, succession planning is really about transitioning in an orderly way your clients and then ultimately the management of your business. And if you do that right, that enriches or enhances the value and allows for the orderly transition of the business. Generally speaking, you probably want to have three candidates for succession for every one owner. So the question is whether or not you're building a business that leads you in that direction. Uh, I, I think that what is happening in a lot of cases is firms don't want to put in the effort or don't know how to put in the effort to create this, uh, this business to last. And as a result, they seek liquidity instead of investing in an enduring business. And, and so this becomes a real challenge uh, in, in the business today when people build something and then they sell it and there isn't this whole notion of how we continue it. And I think that if people began to recognize that uh, succession is a growth strategy, not an exit strategy, then that will become important. Another element that I think comes into play here is that, uh, and you know this just in the course of your transactions, is whenever you give up control, particularly ownership of the business, but any degree of control, it is the single most emotional thing that uh, that business owners have to deal with. It's somewhere between giving their daughter's hand away in marriage and giving her up for adoption. And I think that this becomes a challenge for uh, many business owners is to reconcile uh, their own insecurities or their own sense of control with the liberation that comes from empowering others to be responsible for what the business does. I love that. I love that. Um, let me just take it in a different direction for a moment. So you you have, um, like I said, a background in other industries, and uh, I'm going to ask you to g- give the listeners just a little bit of uh, uh, more insight into that. And my question after you do that is is going to be, um, you know, what have you seen across industries, uh, either that, uh, you know, things you've seen in other industries that you maybe now are informing what you do in the financial services space, or, or just uh, things uh, generally uh, that relate to deals that are universal, uh, you know, across industries that are important for people to understand? Sure. Great question. So this is my seventh career. Uh, As you mentioned in the preamble, I never envisioned uh, working for a bank, uh, let alone working in the custodial division of a bank. Uh, It's not even something that was on my career path or something I would contemplate. So uh, I did evolve uh, through journalism into uh, being part of an investment research and management firm Uh, Then uh, I joined a consulting firm that also did training for closely held businesses around the globe on how to manage from a financial standpoint. And we also did training for bankers on how to lend to closely held businesses, which we did around the globe. And that perhaps more than anything was, uh, was transformative in terms of how I think about business. Because frankly, as a liberal arts journalist major, 
thinking about finance and money was so far removed from my frame of reference that I was actually afraid of it until I wasn't. And that was because of good training that allowed me to get there. So at that stage of my life, I would say that the commonality that I see crosses all businesses is to understand what the financial statements are telling you. It's not a score. It's actually, it's like an EKG. It's giving you a pattern that you have to understand. So when you look at the income statement, you're trying to understand things like pricing and productivity and product mix and service mix. You're trying to understand cost control and whether or not you're managing to the gross margin. And so all of these dynamics really inform certain decisions as to uh, are you driving the business in the right direction? Is it a volume problem or is it a management problem that is, uh, that is core to that? The second thing that, uh, that it's helped me to understand is that uh, every business should have a balance sheet, even when you're in a service business. Uh, the balance sheet gives you great insight because not only does it tell you what you own, but it tells you how you're funding it. And so the conversation that we had about private equity uh, really would be instructive for many advisory firm owners to say, uh, if I'm capitalizing this business, do I have the right mix between short and long-term debt and equity? And how am I building equity? Is it through retained earnings or through some outside source? Uh, this becomes critical. Uh, the third is related to cash flow. If your outflow exceeds your inflow, then your upkeep will be your downfall, fundamental to closely held business management. And when we think in those terms, we create a different outcome. So I would say that that has applied uh, to companies, whether they're in manufacturing or distribution or retail or service. Those are core lessons that uh, we can use as a framework. Uh, the second lesson probably happened when I was uh, uh, running a valuation uh, business. And uh, in, I mean, this is really core to thinking about what are you trying to accomplish, is that, is that, as I mentioned before, value is a function of the future. But when we look deeper, what we find is that value is defined by uh, cash flow, risk, or perceived uncertainty, and growth. And so when you're building a business, you have to be striving for uh, a reasonable uh, level of cash flow that's growing and that is not subject to extraordinary risk. And we do that, you create a higher value. I think the third thing uh, probably came after I, uh, I merged our consulting firm into Moss Adams in the mid-90s is uh, Moss Adams was a growing firm by itself. It was a consolidator in the accounting business. It's now one of the larger accounting firms in the country, certainly dominant on the West Coast. And what was core to their business is their belief in uh, adding value, having uh, not a cultural fit, but a cultural add in how they approach the business. And the CEO of that business, a guy by the name of Bob Bunting, was really uh, an incredible leader and instructor on how to think about uh, what sort of organization you're, you're building. And he conceived of this uh, acronym that I still use in my life today that defines uh, the, the cultural values you, you want. Uh, the acronym is PILLAR, P-I-L-L-A-R, which stands for passion, integrity, lifetime learning, lead by example, accountability, and respect. Those principles I apply in my own management, and it's something that I look to when helping uh, other businesses to make decisions on how they do things. So those are some examples. 
Uh, that's that's all, all all great stuff. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I mean, I, I, going back to the I love that last point, by the way, that the pillar uh, uh, acronym is, phen- is phenomenal. Um, but, you know, going back to the, fir- the first point, it's interesting to me, uh, you know, as, as a lawyer, I remember when I started my own firm in 92. Um, you know, I, I was actually one of the few lawyers who actually did well on the math section on the L- LSATs. Like most of my law firms hate, <laughs> hated math. They couldn't like financial <laughs> statements were foreign to them. And, and it's funny. So I, I don't know why. I, I mean, I guess maybe, you know, I, I was entrepreneurial since I was a kid. Um, so uh-huh. I was always looking at, at, at you know, at, at that. So, you know, I remember when I had no clients, I was running P&Ls and balance sheets and cash flow statements every month, you know, with, 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 nothing, <laughs> That's on, hilarious. with nothing on them, which is, you know, which is funny. Um, but, you know, but, but actually, I, you know, my, my, experience is uh, having clients, you know, across industries, uh, you know, with a concentration in the RA space, but, 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 but I, I mean, you name it, I, uh, I find a lot of, I, I find in general, um, you know, it's an area that, that people can definitely improve in. And I think, uh, I think in the service, I, I think, you know, it's true across the board, but in, in, in manufacturing and retail, I think they're almost forced to uh, be more focused on, you know, cost of goods sold and various metrics because they, you know, they have products, but I, I uh, and not that they all do a great job, but I, I, I feel like in the service industry, when, especially when people are, you know, in, in those industries where they're selling their time, quote unquote, um, you know, it, it tends to be particularly bad at it generally, you know, and, uh, and, um, uh, and I'm wondering if, you know, if, if, if that's your experience and I, and I know for advisors that, you know, uh, purging advisor solutions has some, you know, practice management assistance and, you know, strategic consulting help that help them do that. Um, well, you know, what is your sense of, uh, overall, uh, what people add around that? I think that's a, that's a fair assessment. And, uh, and that really is a value that we try to deliver is, uh, is we're all about the business of financial advice. So we do business consulting rather than drive-by practice consulting. We're really interested in things like strategy and structure and people and process and profits. These are things that we uh, live and breathe and try to uh, benchmark and inform the market around. Uh, I, I would say there's a certain irony that people can't translate uh, the the personal financial issues and the business financial issues. Uh, there are difference in terminology and different ways of looking at it, but these are principles that are really fundamental to how you want to run the business. As an example, I often hear advisory firms talk about EBOC, earnings before owner's compensation. And I'm thinking, well, that's really kind of an interesting concept, but I don't know that it's really helpful from a management standpoint because I want to know all costs to the business. And if I'm an owner, I want to know what's my reward for labor and what's my reward for ownership. So if I were contemplating an acquisition or a sale, what I would want to do is to determine what fair compensation is to the principal who's going to be working in that business after the deal. And uh, I know of no owners who sell their businesses who say, and now I'm going to work for free. Uh, And it's not just the purchase price. There's still some role that they're going to perform. So that's a good example of saying uh, when you construct a proper financial statement, you account for all costs, including your costs for labor in the business. And anything above that in the form of profit is your reward for risk or ownership. And that, that helps you to manage to a different outcome when you do that.
I love it. You know, it's interesting, Mark. I, I have that conversation very often with the breakaway teams, you know, when we're first uh, helping uh, teams leave warehouses, banks, trust companies and set up on their own and, you know, because they often are trying to figure out how to divide equity, uh, you know, and how to pay themselves. And, you know, the, the, one of the fundamental things I start them out with is saying, hey, you know, uh, in your current situation, employed at Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley, UBI, whoever it is, right? Um you're an employee, and although you have a book of business of clients that are, you know, uh, uh, loyal to you, that you're able to fortunately move, um, you know, that they're clients of the of the firm, and you don't really own anything. The, the biggest difference, or at least the initial difference, when when you're uh, going independent, is that you have two hats. You have your advisor producer, you know, hat, uh, and then you have your own hat, and you need to distinguish between the two of those. And, you know, that brings in a lot of stuff that we won't have time to go into all kinds of detail on. But, you know, it, 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 it brings up conversations of, no, you shouldn't necessarily divide your equity by default by relative production. Uh, you know, there's other value people bring. Uh, you know, I, I happen to lean towards saying, hey, on, on the advisor side, if you can have a program on how, you know, uh, your advisors get paid, you should probably just slot into that with your advisor producer hat on, but then obviously you have the separate bucket, you know, where you get paid as an owner. So I love that you made that distinction. It's a conversation that comes up to me with every breakaway team. Yeah, well, that's a that's a great example of how people uh, tend to get confused by the role because when they were at a warehouse, they were a salesperson. By any other name, they were a salesperson. Their whole job was to generate production. But one of the compelling elements for becoming a fiduciary advisor is because they see themselves as an advisor. And what they maybe eventually come to recognize is that only 5 to 10% of the revenue comes from new sales or new growth or new clients. The rest is coming from servicing and retaining existing relationships. And so that naturally suggests that the reward structure has to reflect more of the business model that they've created. They can argue all day long that they are fee-based or fee-only, but if their internal compensation is still based on production, then uh, they're really not living that truth. They're basically saying everything is based on the revenue we generate rather than the service we deliver. So it doesn't mean they should make less. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't pay bonuses, but it does mean that creating a compensation model that's in harmony with the culture that they're trying to create is important. And this also means that unless they create some discipline around compensation that is more business-like, it will be very difficult for them to recruit and retain the right talent. It will be very difficult for them to create operating leverage and to develop career paths for people because the expectation is that the only people you bring in are other producers, when in reality, there are things that producers are doing that they should be delegating to other people. So I think that's a really healthy discussion to have about the transformation of this business and ultimately how those that used to be employee salespeople within a captive organization are now business owners that have to create alignment with their financial structure and their compensation structure to create this enduring business. That's great, Mark. Listen, I, I feel like, you know, we could, we could talk forever, but, uh, I, you know, I, we're coming to the end of our time on this uh, on this podcast, and uh, you know, uh, maybe we'll uh, uh, have you back on at some point because there's a hundred different topics I know you and I could <laughs> provide value for. But I think for this one, um, I'm going to have a last question for you. But before we uh, go there, I just wanted to give you an opportunity if people want to find out more about uh, about uh, BMY Mellon Pershing, uh, you know, or you or uh, you know, reach out. Uh, what's the best way for them to? Where, where should they go? 
Uh, easiest thing is to go to Pershing.com. That's our website. Look for the Advisor Solutions uh, link, uh, or I can be uh, LinkedIn uh, at uh, M Mark Tiberian, T-I-B-E-R-G-I-E-N. Would love to uh, communicate with anybody who's interested in this business or how we might work together. Uh, that's that's great. And 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 folks, Mark is really. I mean, I said it up front, uh, you know, but he is he's really one of the um, real thought leaders in this industry. Uh, you know, not only does he run, you know, one of the top custodians, uh, you know, uh, in, in the space, uh, but you know, the content he puts out. I've seen him speak at a number of conferences, and you know, he always uh, really has uh, very insightful uh, thoughts into uh, all aspects of in the. RA space and, you know, and growth and has a phenomenal background. So definitely, definitely check them out and check out Pershing. Um, so Mark, my final question for you is one that I close every podcast with. And, um, you know, authenticity is one of my highest values. For me, that is not a conversation of some sort of external morals or ethics, uh, although those are important, but they're different. Um, but it's, you know, it's more sort of alignment within a truth and living a life and making business decisions from a place, you know, because it sort of goes back to that why question we talked about earlier in deals. You know, I think everything should come down to the why. Um you know, I mean, why, why are you going independent to start your own firm, right? Why do you want to grow? You know, why do you, um, and, uh, uh, you know, to have, you know, for me, it's really about wh- why become an entrepreneur. Well, we want to create a, you know, a business that, you know, that serves us and aligns with our values. Um, so I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on authenticity, how it impacts, um, you know, you and, and your business, and also maybe how you think, um, you know, it impacts uh, advisory firms and growth and deals. Well, the beauty of this business is that uh, it's uh, it's generally filled with uh, professionals who uh, who understand how they impact the lives of others. And I think that when we get to that point, we realize that it's not about production or the generation of revenue or even how the investment returns are, but whether or not you're transforming the way in which people feel and think about money. Uh, so when I look at authenticity, the question is whether uh, people have that kind of mission in their life and in their business and how they relate to other people and whether or not they are continuing uh, to create this legacy in their lives beyond what they do for a living. There was a, a, a quote I read uh, some time ago that has guided me in this whole notion uh, around authenticity and relationships with others. And it goes something like this, that the greatest indignity one person can commit against another is to underestimate them. We do this by expecting little of them. What I find now is that the people that I meet, I don't expect little of them, I expect a lot from them. And it changes the relationship. The question is whether other people can do the same or whether they'll denigrate the people who they encounter. Wow, what a great way to, that's a perfect way to end, Mark. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks so much, Corey. And thank you, Fueling Deals listeners, for tuning in. Remember, there's only one difference between companies that grow inorganically and those that don't. And it's unrelated to size, amount of capital, or any other factor, other than that the owners and executives of companies that do deals make a decision to do deals, and then they take action. Well, it's time to refuel. So until next week, Corey Kupfer signing out. Thank you again for tuning in. Be sure to leave Fueling Deals a rating and review on iTunes and Google. Check out all our episodes at fuelingdeals.com to find out more resources to accelerate your business growth. 